Thanks. Can you hear me? I was really hot and then it was really cold. If I take this off, it's because I'm hot from terror. <laughs> um, hello. I'm going to talk about the problem of judging, of making judgments about other people. The reading we heard earlier from Matthew is packed full of good advice about this. I love the images in the Bible, especially the King James Version. I sort of collect them. My favourite, for example, is one in a psalm that describes jealous people as having fat eyes. Um, I find it hard with that verse in Matthew about, it was originally moats and beams in the King James Version, but it's now specks and logs. Not to imagine someone with a plank from Travis Perkins sticking out of their face <laughs> and sort of wondering how it would work. And just thinking, what, what did they mean? But I do know what they mean. But seriously, I've wanted to stand up somewhere and talk about the problem of judging for years. Well, at least 30, I think. So now is my chance. And I think I'm really nervous because it's a bit of a, an ambitious thing to do. Um, I think most of my adult life, even, maybe even when I was a child, I've strongly objected to people thinking they're better than others and judging them. I loathe elitism, whether it be in a golf club or the art world or a church. I'm an artist. I make artworks out of a variety of media, including performance, drawings, animations and installations. Anything that seems the best way to communicate ideas I feel passionately about to as wide an audience as possible. I can't exactly weave intellectual theories into my talks or performances, but I hope they're sort of subliminally there. From the age of 23, I made a firm decision, though, to make artworks based on my daily life and interests. It occurred to me that possibly no one but myself would be interested. I hoped they would be but I still needed to make the work as a way of processing my own reflections on life and clarifying my ethics and political opinions and dealing with complicated and ambiguous ideas. My aim has always been to join in the fight to save humanity. Well, sort of. That's the sort of undercurrent. Um, I base my work on my personal life, not as a confessional or really about me, the point is to try and use my life as an illustration, a starting point in the hope that people forget about me and leave thinking in a slightly new way about themselves. I've struggled to come up with wise things to say about the problem that being judgmental causes. So instead, I'm going to tell you three stories from my life and then pop in a few cracking quotations from wise people to illustrate my points. I'm really good at collecting quotations and good bits from the Bible. I've got them on a special document. <laughs> I can pass them around if you ever need a quote. I'm there. So the first story. Andrew, my ex-husband and I, moved into a house up the road in Middleton Grove in 1980. Due to a muddle, the move ended up being on the same day as our first baby was born. Uh, there was a bit of a sort of confusion between Finsbury Park and here. It all went a bit wrong. We then recklessly, since we are both self-employed um, in the arts, embarked on a major building project to renovate the house. The result of so much effort impacted on my physical health. 
I got very ill with gynecological problems after 18 months. Not really surprising when you look back on it, when I sort of managing a building project while Andrew desperately tried to earn some money. I was in terrible pain, doubled up with it at times. And yet when I saw doctors or nurses, they brushed it aside and saw it largely as an emotional problem. I cry when I'm in a lot of pain. I don't know about other people. It's just what happens. Or they even thought it was a marriage problem. Honestly, it was common then for Ill women's illnesses to be treated like that. Finally, I spent a while in the Whittington Hospital and was discharged with the message that if I carried on making such a fuss, they would give me a hysterectomy. I had been judged by them as a young, emotional woman and not seen as someone with a serious medical problem, one that is now taken more seriously, thankfully, and recognised and has got a name. We, as a couple, rebelled by turning to alternative medicine. But what really worked was bed rest, the sort of old Victorian, you know, there's a lot in that. I spent the next four months mostly in bed resting. You can imagine the problems with a toddler, but we managed somehow, and I got used to being in a bed full of biscuit crumbs. But one good thing was it meant I had time to think about my faith, which I'd lost when my father was drowned when I was 15 on a family holiday. My father had an amazing faith. He was just one of those people you could sort of soak it up sitting next to him. I phoned St Luke's and Tim, the vicar then, started visiting. We got on really well. We had some good talks. But when I finally got better, which I did, and we had another child against all expectations, I came to a service here up in the small chapel as the, this part was full of old pews and completely closed up and uh, impossible to heat. Um, it was a gloomy bunch of four people and Tim trying to sort of rally things. And they'd set up, Tim and Sheila had set up family services up in St. Um, St. Francis. And they were really keen that we went. So we went and I'm afraid we just didn't like it. And um, it wasn't our cup of tea. Um, so I went to the Quakers in Hampstead instead. And Andrew and the kids came occasionally. We went there for several years, I think, until we found out what was going here. The first time turned out to be a rare meeting at the Quakers when no one spoke. I sat next to a very friendly older woman. She was so kind at the beginning of the meeting. But as the silence started, I noticed that all I could think of was how much I hated the man in front of me. He was wearing sandals over socks. <laughs> I'm sorry, but really, I just don't remember such intense loathing because it was so silent and they were good Christian people and there I was, obsessed with this man. And I went up and he had corduroy trousers and it was like... And then I started looking at everybody around me and realising that all I did was hate them. And, um, and because it's a whole hour and I couldn't get out of it... Um, I had to go through a whole really painful process. I suppose it would be now called mindfulness, of watching my thoughts. And it sent me back to time to think about a whole lot of things. And at the end of that hour, which was like the most miraculous hour, I found a sense of peace and community. And I laughed at myself. I saw what had happened. 
In the few years that I went to Quaker meetings, I never got the courage to stand up and say anything more than once. And I said, judge not lest you be judged, and then sat down again. Second story. Um, over the next few years after we had, we had Charlie in 1983, so we had two small children. I sort of got quite successful in my 20s. I'd sort of become a bit of a thing on the art scene. I'd had work in the Hayward Annual as a performance artist, feminist performance artist. And uh, my strong intention was to carry on with my work. I did a show that I'd been invited to when Dora was a baby of six months at the ICA called About Time. It was a feminist, a quite early feminist show. Uh, but I, I just found it so difficult with a baby and really I lost my confidence. It took me quite a long time to realise that there was no precedent of women in my family ever doing what they wanted to do after they had children. They could work, but they were sort of dedicated to the family. And I finally changed that. I, I saw, but also really lost my confidence. But I was very fortunate, because um, Andrew and I, who's staying at the moment, we're, we're really good friends. He's a photographer, and he got into doing food photography. I just couldn't work out how to work or go back and run workshops or anything um, with those children. You know, it was just, I'd lost, I didn't, childcare was really difficult then. And, um, but Andrew was, um, started to do cookery books and food photography. And he said, could I go and help with the lunches? So I did that. And then we discovered that there was this thing called being a stylist where somebody got the props for the photography. And I thought, I could do that. And uh, I did that for several years. I just loved it. So uh, our first ever big job was for Keith Floyd. We did his first cookery books and I got all the props. And we did masses of jobs. We did cookery books. It was really fun. And um, we worked for magazines. And I really liked it. I was helping earn money, which was crucial. Children, I could just about manage. But I, I really wanted to go back to being an artist. And I didn't know how. And I'd lost my confidence. And I got this rather unusual job from Good Housekeeping magazine. I don't know why. Because um, they never gave me another one like it. <laughs> But they said, could I go around all the art galleries and museums in London and, and write about the shops? I mean, it was like a dream. I adore shopping. And um, I like going to galleries and museums. And so I had to go around and I did the, I think it was Jif at the British Museum. I did, I did, I didn't know. And it, it got really high marks. I bought some earrings. And um, so... But I ended up at the ICA, which of course was my old stamping ground that I hadn't had the confidence to go back to for several years. I felt so out of it. I thought, I'm not an artist anymore. And I was looking through the bookshelves and, you know, the books, and I saw this book cover which said About Time, and I took it out and it was a book that had just come out about the exhibition I was in. So I was kind of racing hard. I looked in the bit at the back and there was my name in the, you know, what's it called, that bit at the back? Index. <laughs> there was my name in the index, and I went rushing up to the woman at the till and said, I'm in a book. <laughs> and um, it, it really boosted my confidence. But, but what I noticed was that there was a talk to accompany this, um, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks later. So, of course, I went, sort of hoping somebody would say hello. Here you are, back again. So I sat in this group of about 30 of us, 
you know, up in a, some worm in the ICA. And the two women who'd edited the book, um, Griselda Pollock and Rizika Parker, eminent feminists, and somebody else were on the panel, and they talked a bit. And then there was an open question bit. And I suddenly noticed there were three young women sitting close to me, young, young black women, and they got up and they walked up and down the aisles. First of all, they talked to the woman on the panel and they said, you have excluded us. You've excluded the work of, they named these artists. You didn't include them in the exhibition and they're not in the book. I didn't know the politics and in fact, it wasn't them who'd excluded it. You know, I, I just, they were very, very, very angry. It was tangible in that room that they were so angry. And then they walked up and down the rows and they said to each of us, address your own racism, address your own racism. And of course, you know, we're all British, liberal, felt that we were, you know, okay. And it was a very shocking thing because they were so angry. And I could understand their anger, but I didn't know what to do. And I felt personally a bit kind of indignant because I'd been unusually been sent to a Methodist school where quite a lot of girls came from Africa and they were our friends. And it was, when I look back on it, an exceptionally, it was a bit of an idyll for a while in, in the suburbs of London, this school, because it was anti-Semitic. You know, it, it was like everybody was okay for this bubble of time and we were all friends together before the real world kicked in and I realised what was going on far and wide, and I was sort of committed to helping in my rather feeble way in any way I could. So for them to say that to me made me think, oh, but, 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 but I agree with you. But actually it was a gift, you know, because I've thought about that and their anger ever since. I've thought, we're all racist, black, white or anything. You know, we are racist and we have a responsibility to think about it in our daily actions and our behaviour. And I did hear a rather eminent art person, a black art person on the radio the other day saying, I look back at my early self and my anger and feel glad that now I feel more. And I thought, oh, I wonder if you were one of those young women. I'd love to meet you and thank you. But it was, an, it was a pivotal experience for me. So now I come to my third story. Well, I... Uh, cracked up quite badly. I've talked about this in church before in my mid-40s. Um, I, I was part of the mental health system for 11 years. Um, I had many diagnoses. I was really ill, and I've made quite a lot of work about it. And I got quite a lot of labels attached to me. And when I look back on it at that stage, you know, I'd done, surprisingly, my career had taken off after I started making work after that experience at the ICA again and I became really successful but wasn't paid enough Andrew's work was struggling we had teenage children and my mum, my stepfather died and my mum took to phone me up every day and saying she wished she was dead and um, all in all the combination was quite a lot to keep together, I had very bad troubles with work and bullying anyway so I cracked up and I got into the mental health system and nobody really asked what was wrong, um, they asked what was wrong with me. They didn't really sort of ask about my life because that's not the way it works. Uh, rather than what's happening to you, it's sort of what's wrong with you. And they all got a bit fixated on my father drowning, which really was nothing to do with what was happening then. It had been a long time before. 
So I got this label, and um, one thing led to another, and nothing really changed. I kept thinking, something's going to work. And I ended up um, being put on a, di- a medication that, to try and help, and it, I, I put on five stone. And I have got really bad arthritis, so it didn't help at all. But then I was like this, not only a disordered person, I was a fat disordered person, or, you know, a very overweight one. And it's interesting how the medical profession and psychiatrists and everything, although they really want to help, once they see you, they see you for what you've become. And I still carry on crying. And I got physically ill. I was working. I was touring all over the world to try and get money, sort of lumbering around. And um, inside, I was getting better. And I um, uh, got physically ill. I remember getting really run down. I kept getting bugs. And one day, I was struggling to breathe, and my chest hurt. And my daughter, my wonderful daughter, was at home. She's training to be a psychologist, actually. And she we phoned up a helpline, you know, one of the health lines, and um, they said, go to A&E, UCH, you know, something wrong with your heart. So they, they gave me lots of tests, they put wires on, and they discovered that I was all right, and they said, we'll find out what's wrong, and they put me, you know, I was in a cubicle waiting to see a doctor. So this doctor came in and was very nice to us both, and then he said, he asked me questions about my medication, and I told him what medication I was on and what my diagnosis was. And from that moment, it was an astonishing thing to witness. He stopped talking to me. He talked across me to my daughter and he said, this, your mother, a rather large woman, has nothing wrong with her. Take her home and tell her to get on with her life. He said that to Dora, 23-year-old woman, in front of me. So we were mortified, and Dora was outright raged, and um, I knew this happened. It happened to my friends. Uh, but it's shaming, and it's frustrating. And a couple of days later, I went to the doctor, because I was so ill. I had a quite a high temperature. And it turned out I had the beginning of a, a pleurisy. I had a very serious chest infection. And, but oddly enough, I kept getting ill and uh, uh, it was two years later every time I went up it was seen as really an emotional problem a couple of years later I was finally diagnosed by making a big fuss with quite advanced breast cancer so I had been judged by the label that had been given to me and by the fact that I was overweight because of medication and not being able to walk so those are my three examples I hope these stories both illustrate and lead me back to the problem of judging people. It's human nature, how we work, to endlessly want to categorise each other, decide which group people belong to, community we fit in with, feel comfortable with. It's that part of our pack-like animal history that will never change. But it's wrong to look at someone and make sweeping judgments about them because of their colour, their clothes, their slightly crooked behaviour. To think they're different so they don't deserve our respect, our love, our efforts to understand. If you follow the judge not lest you be judged or do as you would be done by rule, then what do you want people to think about you? Nice clothes and shoes, like me, 
tidy, clever, trendy, friendly. So I'm going to just end with two useful quotes. Well, there's a little bit more, actually. I discovered the work of this amazing Bessel van der Kolk. I don't know. Van der Kolk, yeah. He's a specialist in trauma survival and treatment in America. And there's this quote, uh, victims or people we judge are members of society whose problems represent the memory of suffering, rage and pain in a world that longs to forget. And then another one I found on Wikipedia, where most of my learning comes from. Um, this is called labelling theory. Labelling theory is the theory of how the self-identity and behaviour of individuals may be determined or influenced by the terms used to describe or classify them. Labelling theory holds that deviance is not inherent to an act, but instead focuses on the tendency of majorities to negatively label minorities and those seen as deviant from standard cultural norms. I very painfully know how the injustice of being judged because of being labelled by doctors by the psychiatric system, a system instigated over a century ago, which is innately classist, racist and misogynistic, a way of medicalising and commodifying misery, which is meant to help, but patently fails these days and needs to be changed. That label, that I have a so-called personality disorder, will stay on my medical notes forever. You can lose a criminal record easier than you can a psychiatric diagnosis, despite the fact that my mental health is better than most. Truly. I always used to think that if I and other like-minded people tried hard enough, were nice enough, worked hard enough, it would all be fine. Everyone would get on and be friends, and so the world peace would ensue. It's a level of opti optimism and Pollyanna-itis gone mad. I think that part, that's part of what led me to cracking up so badly in middle age, was that naive attitude and also exhaustion. It's hard to work naively to save humanity, but my optimism and hope and faith also really helped me get better. Part of why I got better, so much better than hap and happier than I ever was, was because I finally realised that it's the world that's mad, not me. Out of such dark times, I came to understand better the complexity of human nature and society. As a result, I've become more accepting. My faith is strengthened and I'm much happier. But my sense of outrage, indignation at injustice and desire to fight on is just as strong, sharper and more focused in the quest to change what I think I can. My experience of severe mental illness is a long time ago now, but during the time I was enmeshed in the mental health system, I reached rock bottom when I was trapped in the Highgate Mental Health Centre for seven weeks as an inpatient in 2005. Just couldn't get out. Everything I did was seen as just problematic. And because I was stuck there, I used to phone people and I knew, I knew some really wise people, including mental health professionals, and there was this great guy... Um, and I remember talking to him on a, a night shelter line and he reminded me of a conversation we'd had quite a lot about the only thing you can change, I think it comes from Buddhism, the only thing you can change is yourself. In an impossible situation, you're the person who has to change. And because I was stuck there, it had a really profound effect and actually since then, when there's any problem, I think, how do I need to change in order to help make a change in this situation? 
So I'd like to end with that poem, um, the Robert Graves poem, that wonderful poem that Adrian read so amazingly um, about the butterfly, the cabbage white, and f the flying crooked gift. And being someone who's privileged to have met many people who would be described as flying crooked, who are sort of in the mental health system, or, or separate, you know, I feel very privileged. And one thing that goes with that poem uh, is a comment that in an unposted letter of 1933, Robert Graves wrote that scientists failed to understand that the cabbage white's seemingly erratic flight provides a metaphor for all original and constructive thought. My final thought on this subject is that nothing changes if you don't change yourself. And so here's a quote by Rumi, so you can't get better than that. Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Thank you. Thank you.